You are listening to New Covenant Fellowship. Well, as most of you in here know, who know me, um, I served as a youth pastor for several years before we launched New Covenant Fellowship. And during that time, uh, I had a, a lot of students who were very talented actors and actresses. So while you guys were out on movie dates, my wife and I were on play dates. We were watching several plays, and that was a, a, a great experience for me. And uh, you probably already know this, but this is kind of how uh, the play works. It's broken down like this. It's broken down into multiple acts, and just for the sake of illustration here, we're just going to say two acts. And in act one, you get like introduced to the characters, you find out the plot and the storyline, and then conflict is introduced, and things are rolling along. And by the end of act one, getting a little antsy, you're wondering, okay, where's this story going? Okay, what's going on here? And then intermission to the rescue, because by now you have got to pee something fierce. And after all, we're Americans here, and our attention span is only so long. And it's time to check Facebook again, because it's only been an hour. And then, okay, intermission ends, and it's end of act two. And in act two, we kind of start to see some progress going on. Our hero emerges. We get the climax of the story. We see how the conflict is resolved. Happily ever after, bada bing, bada boom. And so we can kind of think of the Bible as a sacred story, as a divine drama that is like a play split up into two acts. And the Old Testament is Act 1, where we are introduced to the characters, the plot, the storyline, and conflict is introduced. And Act 2, we can think of as the New Testament, where we see the hero emerge, where we see conflict resolved and happily ever after, bada bing, bada boom. Now, a lot of people kind of like to avoid Act 1. A lot of people only like to get into the New Testament, because after all, that the Old Testament, well, it's old, and nobody likes old, we like new, right? So, so we like to avoid the Old Testament, but doing that is like jumping into a play in Act 2, and that's no good. So... The fascinating thing about our sacred story, the fascinating thing about this divine drama, is that Act 2 is essentially the retelling of Act 1, only this time the story is retold and reshaped and reformed in Jesus Christ. And we find that everything that was played out in Act 1 was intended to foreshadow and illustrate Jesus Christ, who in the end emerges as our hero. So, you know, in, in case you're one who likes fancy terminology, um, here, here's some fancy terminology for you. If you don't care for fancy terminology, this is your cue to zone out, think about lunch, think about the pro bowl, think about whatever you want to think about. But for those of you who want to get technical, what we see in Act 2 is a recapitulation of Act 1 in Jesus Christ. What we see is that Act 1 has types and shadows throughout, which are Old Testament people, places, things, events that typify or foreshadow spiritual realities that are manifest in the New Testament. Okay, come back to me now, wherever you're at. In Act 1, here's our storyline. God chooses a people to be his very own special people, his treasured possession, the nation of Israel. And God makes promises to Israel. I'm going to give you a land a land flowing with milk and honey to be your inheritance. Uh-oh, conflict is introduced. How is this going to happen when all of God's children are enslaved in Egypt? So Egypt has enslaved God's people. Conflict is introduced. But God makes good on his promises. He is a promise keeper. He is a covenant keeper. He is a trustworthy God. So God raises up a servant, his prophet Moses, to be his mouthpiece and to deliver his people out of slavery. And with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God delivers his people out of Egypt. They pass through the Red Sea on dry ground, and then the Red Sea swallows up Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies. And then for 40 years, God's chosen people, Israel, wander through the wilderness. And at the end of that 40-year transition period from slavery to freedom, they enter into the promised land and receive it as their inheritance. That's Act one, where we see the climax of that particular act as God's people entering into the promised land of their inheritance. And then in Act 2, we see Jesus showing up on the scene, and he redefines the chosen people of God 
not only as flesh and blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but as those who believe in him. And at this time, by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, the religious leadership of Israel had essentially enslaved God's people under the heavy burden and yoke of the law. And they were wielding their power and their authority in such a way that had God's people in bondage. And so God raises up a new Moses, Jesus, who is the antitype, to deliver his people out of that spiritual slavery and into freedom. And once again, we have a 40-year wilderness wandering period, if you will, between 30 and 70 AD, at which point God's new Israel, his true chosen people, enter into the new promised land, the heavenly kingdom. Now, as part of this sacred story we're talking about here, this divine drama unfolding in the scriptures, a huge, huge, huge component part of that is the law of Moses. And where that fits into the sacred story is during that wilderness wandering time, God gave his servant Moses the law to give to the people, about 613 commands or so, most people estimate. And, you know, we're all familiar with the famous 10. There's like this top 10 list, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't take the Lord's name in vain, and all that good stuff. And, and God essentially gave Moses this law to give to the people. Hey, this is how you guys are to live in the land. When you come into the land, this is what your life is supposed to look like. Well, in Act 2, we've got the antitype of this, which is found in Jesus, the new Moses, also going up on the mount to give God's people instruction for life in the new land. And this is embodied in the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Go ahead and turn there in your Bible, Matthew chapter 5. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 12, which we know as the Beatitudes, and that's simply a fancy word that simply means the blessings. It's a Latin word that means the blessings. And what we found there is that Jesus' words in this section, known as the Beatitudes, is essentially a twofold message. It's good news for some, and it's bad news for others. And we see that made more explicit in Luke's version of these so-called Beatitudes, because Luke includes some corresponding woes. Whereas Matthew simply has the blessings, Luke also has not only blessed are the poor, but woe to you who are rich, for you will go hungry. Not only um, blessed are the, uh, the hungry, woe to those who are well satisfied. Not only blessed are you who are persecuted, but woe to you who are spoken well of by men. For that's how they treated the false prophets. And so we've got, again, this twofold message. So it's good news for some, bad news for others. Now remember who Jesus was talking to here. He had a, a, a crowd full of people who were essentially Israelites living in the land under the law of Moses. Now, they're the ones who are essentially thinking, we've got this thing on lock. All right? Our pedigree, everything about us, the kingdom is ours for the taking. We're flesh and blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're circumcised. We're in the land. We've got the Torah. We've got the temple. We've got the kingdom. It's ours. It's in our hands. It's ours for the taking. But Jesus starts saying some things that make people kind of start to wiggle around a little bit and feel very uncomfortable in their seats like, wait a minute. In other words, Jesus starts drawing this line in the sand and saying, just because you have all those things doesn't mean the kingdom is yours. In fact, let me tell you who the kingdom will go to. And it's very surprising to them. In other words, some of you Israelites will inherit the kingdom, others will not. That was a shocker. Now, if that was the case, let's just get hypothetical for a minute. If that was the case, some Israelites were going to receive the kingdom and some were not. Well, the assumption would likely be, well, God's favor rests upon the rich and the religious leaders. I mean, that's how God's favor was displayed. Certainly not the poor. If anybody's going to be excluded from this kingdom, it'll be the marginalized. It'll be the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the alien, the people that don't have authority. It'll be the downtrodden who are excluded from this kingdom. And Jesus is essentially flipping the script on them, saying, no, not the case. That assumption is dead wrong. So Jesus, on the other hand, brings comfort to the downtrodden. He brings comfort to the marginalized, to the poor, to the widows, to the fatherless, to the alien. And then he casts the dark shadow upon the rich, the prestigious, the self-righteous. 
Jesus was essentially telling them, look, bringing comfort to the marginalized. While it may look bad for you right now, telling you, you are blessed because in the end, roles will be reversed. Blessed are you who are poor now. Woe to the rich because their riches will be stripped from them. Blessed are you who are hungry now. Woe to those well fed now because they're going to go hungry and they did in the siege. <clears throat> there will be a decisive event that makes very clear who are truly children of God and who are not because that was the argument of the day. We're the chosen ones of God. We who are flesh and blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and who recognize that this man is a blasphemer and that his followers are heretics. It is we, the true, pure, strictly law of Moses kind of Jews over here. We're the ones. No, 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 no. God is redefining Israel in Christ. We're the chosen ones. We're the ones who are truly sons of God, who are in Christ. No, 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 no. Flesh and blood. No, 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 no. Of the spirit. That was the argument of the day. But the decisive event that would make manifest who was truly the victor would be the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070 by Rome. Now, a, a fitting metaphor, in my opinion, for this kind of situation is the AFC playoffs. I don't get to watch a whole lot of football. Usually when I do, it's at my in-laws' house. And as I understand it, the, the Ravens going into this thing were underdogs. Didn't look good for them going up against, was it the Broncos? And they were underdogs there, and nobody expected the Ravens to win. And then, oh, they pulled it off. It was like two or three overtimes or something like that. And then, after they defeated the Broncos, oh, well, it's certainly over for them now because there's no way that they could beat Tom Brady and his Patriots. And I was watching some of the pregame stuff, some of the analysis, and, of course, everybody's favoring the, the Patriots. They're the, the favored to win, and... By this much, nine points or however many it was. Some say nine, some say seven, I don't know. But the Ravens, they're destined to lose. It's looking bad for them. They're, they, there's no way that they can be the victors. They are going down. It looks bad for them at the time. And I like rooting against the Patriots. Um, and my buddy Alan Bondar's home team is the Baltimore Ravens. So, you know, I'm pulling for the Ravens here. And the game starts, and of course, things are not looking so good for the Ravens. It's like, oh. Yeah, well, they were right. There goes Tom Brady marching down the field. Looks like the Patriots are going to win. Okay, it's not looking so hot for the Ravens. Okay, I get it. Okay. Going to the locker room at halftime, it's what, 13 to 7 or something like that. Um, Patriots are winning. Ravens are down. And so, well, that's what it looks like it lost for the Ravens. But then after halftime, they come out third quarter and not looking so hot for the Patriots anymore. And the Ravens score and score, and score, and final score was like 28 to 13, is that what it was? But Ravens won. The underdogs won. So this whole beatitude section of the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like, hey, I know it looks bad for you, Ravens. I know you guys are the underdogs going into this thing. I know it looks like you're about to get whooped up on by the Patriots, but I'm telling you, in the end, blessed are you, you will be the AFC champs. Patriots over here going, nah, we the AFC champs. Ravens over here saying, nah, we the AFC champs. And that was the discussion of the hour. Who was going to emerge as the true AFC champs? And in the end, it was the underdog. Well, in the end, in 70 AD, at the end of the age, the underdogs, those who were in Christ, emerged as victorious. Now, we noted some of these elements are very circumstantial and primarily restricted to Jesus' original audience. Poor Hungry, persecuted for righteousness' sake. But some of these were based on character as well. And while we noted that this is a really neat history lesson as to what was going on in the first century, the whole purpose of this sermon series is to go beyond a really neat history lesson and to answer the question, if we are in the kingdom, if we are the kingdom, what does it mean? What does it mean for us? How then are we to live our lives? Can we make any practical application today from Jesus' words, and we kind of answered that question by saying, okay, how do we know if it was circumstantial? Let's go ahead and keep that in the first century. Let's not try to be poor. Let's not expect to be 
you know, if we're not being persecuted for the name of Jesus, how maybe we really aren't in the kingdom. Maybe we're not really Christians. Maybe we're not being offensive enough. Who knows? No. <laughs> Circumstances, first century. That which has to do with character is timeless. God's desire for the character of his people, timeless. And the beautiful thing about this is that the way Jesus frames this is not, listen, guys, I'm the king of the kingdom. I'm running this thing. This is how you need to live or else. This is how Jesus frames it. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. And that Greek word there is makarios, and it means happy. Isn't that what everybody wants? Happiness? Isn't that why people do what they do? I thought it would make me happy if I did this. That's why people do what they do, because they want to be happy. And so Jesus isn't saying, this is how you have to live, or else, buddy. Jesus is saying, here is a means to a life of happiness. If you want to be happy, here's how it, this is how it can happen for you. Happy are the meek. After all, it's kind of hard to be happy if you're busy walking around like a prideful, puffed-up jerk. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's kind of hard to be happy if you're consistently walking in sin because that sin is going to act as a roadblock in your relationship with God. And being in good fellowship with God is the ultimate source of happiness. You want to be happy? Happy are the merciful. It's kind of hard to be happy if you're walking around like John Cleese, Cleese the Cobra Kai Dojo Sensei, like, we do not train to be merciful here. An enemy confronts you here in the streets. Competition. He's your enemy. The enemy deserves no mercy. What is the problem, Mr. Lawrence? If you're just busy <laughs> harboring bitterness, it's hard to be happy. As we've said before, drink, being bitter, holding on to bitterness, harboring bitterness, is like drinking poison and expecting the person, the other person, to die or to be harmed. You're only harming yourself by holding on to bitterness. You want to be happy? Let it go. Show mercy. Be merciful. Happy are the merciful. You want a life of happiness? Mercy is where it's at. Happiness comes in being a peacemaker, not a conflict creator, not one who starts drama. It's kind of hard to be happy if you're busy starting drama and then everything starts getting crazy. So we looked at a lot of ways that Jesus' words are very, very applicable to you and I today. 2,000 years later, as citizens in the kingdom. These virtues, these character traits, are a means by which we can live a life of happiness. And we noted that God, therefore, not only cares about our holiness, but he also cares about our happiness. And the two go hand in hand. So uh, if you've ever heard from me or from anybody else that God doesn't care about your happiness, he cares about your holiness. Well, that sounds very pious and um, very righteous. doesn't seem to be the case. God does seem to care about our happiness, and he gives us a means by which to attain that. All right. So now, we move forward in the text, and uh, what they teach you uh, in Bible college and seminary is you don't want to do a long intro. You want to keep it short. So as you can see, I don't, I don't learn very well. Slow learning. <laughs> but here we go. We're going to move forward in the text. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse 13. We're going to go through verse 20 this morning. We'll kind of take this in chunks. Let's look at verse 13. Jesus says to first century Israel, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Now remember who Jesus is speaking to, speaking of first century Israel. And he's telling the Jews, those Jews, those Israelites, you are the salt of the earth. Now essentially what he's saying here is that you are supposed to be the salt of the earth, whether they were truly doing that or not is a different story. But what we do find as we read this divine drama, as we read through Act 2 of this divine drama in the sacred story, we find that indeed they had lost their saltiness. Now you and I tend to think of salt as that stuff that's in the shaker next to the pepper that we pour on food to change the flavor. But in Jesus' day, 
The primary function of salt was to be a preservative. See? If they, like, you know, caught a fish and didn't want to eat it today, they couldn't just put it in the refrigerator. We can. They couldn't. Salt was a preservative. They didn't have scientists sitting in laboratories coming up with 18-syllable preservatives that we can't pronounce that can keep food around for a long time. They used salt to preserve food. Salt's primary function was to be a preservative. So when Jesus tells the Israelites, you are the salt of the earth, the idea there is that they were the preservers of truth. They were the ones who were to preserve the truth and traditions of Yahweh as the one true God who was to be worshipped alone. They were the ones who were to preserve the truth of Torah, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Now, problem happens when Jesus comes on the scene and says stuff like, I am the way and the truth and the life. Because if they're the salt of the earth, and they're supposed to be preservers of truth, and they're preserving Torah, but excluding Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Torah, then they're no longer preserving truth. They've lost their preserving power. Okay? Let's see if I can put that another way or reiterate that. They're thinking, we are the preservers of Torah. We got that. Jesus comes on the scene. Hey, uh, word became flesh, made his dwelling among us, embodiment of Torah, fulfillment of Torah. Everything that the types and shadows in the Torah pointed to is in their midst, in Jesus Christ. The truth, in bodily form, right there. To reject him and to not uphold and perpetuate and preserve the truth of Jesus is to fail to be the preservers of truth. So in essence, by the end of Jesus' life, we see that he is put to death on the cross as they claim we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. They've lost their saltiness. They've lost their preservative power to preserve the truth. And what happens to salt that loses its saltiness? What's it good for? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by men. If it's no longer going to act as a preservative of truth, then throw it outside into the darkness. But there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it shall be trampled on by men. Now I believe that Jesus is making a very, very, very specific allusion here. Um, go ahead and keep your finger or bookmark or whatever in Matthew 5 and flip over to Luke chapter 21. And Remember that Luke is telling the same exact story as Matthew is. They're both telling their version from their perspective of Act 2 in this divine drama. And we're going to look at Luke 21. Matthew's account of this same discourse is found in Matthew 24 and 25. And if you want more on that, you can grab a disc from the back or go online and check out our sermon series entitled How in the World. But look what Jesus says. In Luke 21, beginning in verse 20. Now remember who's talking to? He's talking to Jews in his day. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days. For pregnant women and nursing mothers, there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What's going to happen to Jerusalem? They will be trampled on by the Gentiles. You catch that? What good is the salt if it loses its saltiness? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by men. Well, Jesus is saying, look, this salt in my midst that has lost its saltiness, those who do not believe in me and uphold me as true, their salt that has lost their saltiness and they're no longer good for anything. They will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be trampled on 
by the Gentiles, namely the Romans. When you do see Rome surrounding this place, get out of here. Because those who don't believe my words and trust in their own self-righteousness and say, we're the children of Abraham. God's got our back. He's going to give us victory over those uncircumcised fellows. We can stay right here in this strong fortress. We, we'll stay right. God's going to protect his house, right? We can stay in the temple. We'll be good to go. God will not allow his temple to be destroyed by those Gentiles. We're good. Don't believe. Don't believe Jesus as truth. You will be trampled by the Gentiles. But if you do believe Jesus is truth, if you trust his words, get out of Jerusalem, lest you be trampled with the unsalty salt. But those who did believe Jesus fled and were spared from such trampling. They were the true salt of the earth who would, from that point forward, preserve the truth of Jesus. All right, let's flip back over to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus continues in verse 14, and he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now again, Jesus' audience is first century Israel. And he's telling them that you are to be the light of the world. You are the light of the world. And he's encouraging them here to manifest that. And not only shed light of Torah, not only bring truth to the nations, not only tell the nations about Yahweh as the one true God and the knowledge of him and the worship of him. Now Jesus, I believe, is saying, I am the embodiment of Torah. I am the fulfillment of the law. I am the word become flesh. Shed the light that leads people to the knowledge and truth of me. But the problem is that Act 1 Israel, Israel according to the flesh, Old Covenant Israel, they got prideful, they got exclusive, and they did not bring the truth of Torah to the nations. They, they did not bring in the Gentiles into their fold to be part of the covenant community by and large. Here and there we find a, a Gentile like Rahab or somebody who comes into the fold, but by and large they, they weren't in the business of saying, hey, let's, let's bring everybody to come to know our God. By and large they were very exclusive and had essentially put that lamp under a bowl, whereas they should have put it on its stand to give light to the world. And again, Jesus is here encouraging his first century audience, now, be the light of the world. Shine the light. Not just the light of Torah, but of me, the embodiment of Torah. The new Jerusalem is to be what the old Jerusalem was supposed to be, a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. And now notice, notice, notice what Jesus adds to this. He says... That this is not just a matter of the message in and of itself. It's not just what you proclaim with your words, but with your deeds. He adds deeds to doctrine. He adds behavior to belief. He says, in the same way, shine your light before men. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's not just so that they may hear the good words that come out of your mouth, but so that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is powerful. This is powerful. I mean, consider how powerful our actions are. We've all heard that phrase, that cliche, actions speak louder than words, and it's true. I think that throughout history, a lot of people who follow Jesus think maybe they missed this a little bit. I mean, how many things have been done in history in the name of Jesus that are not like Jesus? 
How many things have been done in the name of Christianity that were unchristian? I mean, is that not the argument that people love to throw out there? The moment you want to share the gospel with somebody is not often the response, well, I tried that whole church thing, but it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. Or, well, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of not into that because their behavior doesn't match their belief. Their deeds don't match their doctrine. I mean, what about the Crusades? I mean, what about people who bomb abortion clinics? What about hate crimes against gay people? I mean, what about all these things that Christians do that doesn't look anything like Jesus? Good point. People oftentimes are not even open to hear the message of the gospel because of all of the negative publicity that Christians have received because of unchristian actions. Behavior that's inconsistent with belief. So while it's easier, it's so easy, especially kind of as a knee-jerk reaction to the Catholic movement and the, and the Protestant world, it's so easy to make it not about what we do, but what we believe. It's all about faith. We're saved by grace through faith alone. Yes, true. But as James says, Faith without deeds is dead. What good is it if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? The two go hand in hand. And as we've already mentioned before, James draws heavily from Jesus. And it's no wonder that James makes such a point because Jesus here also connects deeds with doctrine, behavior with belief. Being a Christian is so much more than what we believe has to do also with how we behave. Are we illuminating the truth of Jesus, not just with our words, but with our actions? Or are we being hypocritical haters, guilty as charged? I think that's a healthy question. But don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that the only way that we can be effective as the light of the world, the only way that we can be effective is if we walk in perfection and without sin at all. Not going to happen. We all sin and fall short. Right? So what we must not do is present ourselves in such a way as if to say that we have it all together. Or to present ourselves in such a way that is self-righteous or to be hypocritical. The key, I believe, is to be authentic and to humbly acknowledge and recognize where we fall short. And in that is the underlying message and core of the gospel. I'm not perfect. I do mess up. See my shortcomings? I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Let me tell you about this Jesus who can bring abundant life, who can reconcile man to God, who can bring you into a relationship with God that I now have, not because I'm perfect in and of myself, but because I'm in Jesus and I am credited with his righteousness. And our goal in this particular sermon series, again, is to detail what is normative for life in the kingdom. What should life look like in the kingdom? What does it mean? What does it mean for us? How are we to live? So to answer that question, if we are the new Israel, which I believe scriptures teach that we are, then we, like the Israel of old, are to be the preservers of truth, who like the path, so that those on the outside, those in the darkness, might come to see the truth and knowledge of Jesus and come to worship him as the true God. Not just with our words, but with our actions. We may be the only Bible that somebody reads, right? You've heard that before and it sounds cheesy, but I believe it to be true. We may be the only Bible that somebody reads. Because after all, a lot of people out there on the outside looking in, they're not reading the Bible. So their understanding of Jesus Christ, their understanding of Christianity, their understanding of Christians is based on what they read in Christian life. In Christian life. They read us, not the Bible. Right? So, with that being said, our words, unashamed proclamation of the truth, Combined and coupled with actions that are consistent with that truth, I believe, will be a powerful light to the world. Now, 
this whole light of the world business, what's the goal? What's the end goal? What's the purpose? I think that's usually a good kind of question to ask. Um, I believe that we serve a God of order, a God who has purpose. Now, granted, I can go to the Old Testament and read some commands, and in most cases, most cases I can go, that makes sense. I totally get it. I mean, that makes sense. I totally see why God told the Jews not to eat that or not to do that. Sometimes I'm like, I'm not really sure why he said to do that, so I'm just going to go with he's God and he said so. It is what it is. But God is an orderly God. He is a God who has purpose and plan and reason. And so what, what's the purpose of this whole, you are the light of the world? What is the purpose? Well, it's right there in the text. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give you praises. Not so much. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's the goal. The goal, the end result, the purpose is that God would receive the glory. Not that we would receive the glory. Not that we would receive praises from men. Flip over to Matthew 23. Um, we can see here how the Israel of old got it twisted. And that by that terminal generation, by, that, by the time that Jesus' contemporaries um, came to be known as this wicked and depraved generation... We're going to see here that their purpose, their reason for doing good deeds was selfish. It was that they might receive praise from them. And Jesus condemns this. In Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1, we read, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, but they do not practice what they preach. So hey, they're the teachers of the law, they're sitting in Moses' seat, do what they say, but don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, putting them in bondage as a spiritual Egypt, Revelation 11, 8. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have men call them rabbi. You can stop there. You get the picture. And we'll see more of this as we move into Matthew chapter 6. We'll see much more of this whole doing things in order to be seen by men and in order to receive praises from other people for what you do. But what we can see here is Jesus condemns this motive. And back in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds. The purpose, the goal, the motive should be the praise of God, not the praise of you. And there's people out there who do good things. <clears throat> donate money to this organization. But oftentimes it can become very clear that the motive behind that is Look what I did. So-and-so supports such-and-such. Such. Look what I did. And that is not to be our motive. As the light of the world, our motive is to kind of be on the slide, on the DL. Not taking the spotlight, but like holding the spotlight up to Jesus. As the hands and feet of Jesus doing good deeds for the purpose of his glory, his honor, his Praise. The end is not our glory, but his. We do good deeds to others out of love. It's the motivation of God's glory. So the bottom line, the bottom line for this morning, as actors in this divine drama, as characters in act two of this sacred story, our role is, as the new Israel of God, to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world, to be the preservers of truth, not just in Torah, but in Jesus, who is the embodiment and fulfillment of Torah, who is the word become flesh, who had made his dwelling among his people. And we are to light the path as the light of the world. We are to illuminate the truth that those on the outside, those in the darkness, those in the nations, as the scripture uses that term, 
would see the truth, come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and worship Him. And that our evangelism, that we would expand the kingdom through evangelism, that we wouldn't put this lamp under a bowl, but that we would be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, and that this evangelism, this would be manifest not only in, as I said earlier, an unashamed proclamation of the truth of Jesus with words, but with behavior that matches that belief, with deeds that flow from those doctrines. Because I believe that the words are important. Don't misunderstand me here. I'm not simply saying we should live like good people but never tell people about Jesus. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus and don't even like Jesus but do good things. And that's great. I, I, I would way, way prefer really nice people who do good things that don't necessarily love Jesus to jerks for Jesus who know a lot about the Bible but are just not very nice at all and don't love people. I, I do. But the two, I'm saying, I believe, go hand in hand. So as the light of the world, illuminate the truth with words, but with deeds that point to Jesus Christ as well. This is our lot in life as characters in this divine drama. As citizens of the kingdom, we are to be preserves of truth, shining forth the light of Jesus, living happily ever after. As shiny, happy people. I'm telling you, R.E.M.'s source of inspiration for his songs and scriptures. Let's pray.